Hundreds of stories, documents, photos and videos published by people from all over Europe. This is My History, a collaborative project from the European Parliament, where history and the lives of European citizens coincide. This is Elza. Elza Maurich Kumar. As a young woman, Elza Maurich Kumar had to face an adolescence marked by fear. Today, she is 91 years old. She told us her story, which cannot fail to touch us with its clarity, respect and its strong message calling for peace in Europe. Here is her story. Let's go back to the year 1944, when Elsa was still at school in Cormons, not far from her home village of Schlaurenz. Normally, she stayed with her aunt Adela and her grandpa in Cormons during the week and only went back to Schlaurenz on Saturdays. Today, Cormons is in Italy and Schlaurenz in Slovenia, only eight kilometres apart. Both places are in the region called Gorishka Burda, or Colio. At the time, Colio Alberta was a partisan resistance area. The Germans didn't have an army post there, not in Dobrovo or in Koisko. On my way from Komons to Pratsano, I could see big signs saying Achtung Banditengebiet, or Area of Bandits or Partisans. Often when I went home from Komons on a Saturday afternoon, I didn't see a single soul. People didn't take to the road unless it was really necessary. But back home, yes, there was an active resistance and many meetings. There was a youth organisation too. My sister Milena and all the girls were organised and often they'd put propaganda material into a bag that I'd take with me to my Aunt Adela. When I was there, I often saw messengers pass by and take the material. But our neighbours discovered what we were doing and they denounced us. On May the 2nd, my aunt and I were arrested. The week of the 2nd of May 1944 was the time of the first early cherries. The village children and teenagers climbed the cherry trees to pick this first delicious fruit. But the war was not yet over, and the youth of Schlaurenz were active in the resistance. Elsa's childhood came to an abrupt end at the age of 16. The neighbours who denounced us knew everything and they told it all to the authorities. On May the 2nd, we were taken to prison, first in Gorizia, where I was kept until June the 13th, almost one and a half months without any kind of trial. My mum visited many times, so did our family and friends from Gorizia. They all pleaded for my freedom and release and they even bribed the authorities, but nothing helped. The prisons in Gorizia were getting fuller and fuller. 
Many women from the region were imprisoned, from Vipave, Rentsche and the villages around Aidoshina that had been burnt down. The prisons were so full that they told us we'd be moved to Germany. Germany. For the women and girls of Gorizia prison, this meant working on German farms. That's what they thought, and it felt like a relief compared to being locked up in prison. People knew about volunteers working on German farms, and people had already gone there in 1940 and 1941. The women prisoners were sure that this is what lay ahead for them, and they were even reassured to think that they would be going there to work. On June the 13th, 1944, their journey to Germany began, and they were convinced that they were heading for the farms. My mum brought in a new suitcase, a new coat and anything she could to ease the journey. My family did everything they could to make me feel comfortable. Then we were put on a truck to take us from the prison to the railway station, not to the normal passenger platform, but to the goods platform. Today there's a memorial plaque on that platform saying that people were transported to Germany from that place. The train departed and passed the villages the prisoners called home. The train came from Trieste. A few carriages were already filled with the prisoners from Coroneo. When the train stopped in Gorizia, we were put in the cattle wagons. The train went by Mossa and Cormons, and through the cracks I could see people picking cherries. I thought of my family. In Udine, the train stopped on a siding. The girls from Trieste asked the guard if they could see the commander and asked him where they were going. He said they could. So the girls went to the commander's wagon, which was just behind the locomotive. And he said, yes, I'll tell you. We're going to Auschwitz. He even wrote it on a piece of paper. Auschwitz. When they heard the name Auschwitz, it meant nothing to the girls. They were not at all concerned. At the time, they didn't know anything about the concentration camps. They were still convinced that this was a place, a village or a town in Germany, where they would be sent to work. The train was full, mainly of people from the region of Primorska, on the North Adriatic coast, and not only women and girls, but also families and men, all in separate wagons. After this stop in Udine, the train continued its journey through Austria. In the evening, we had a pit stop somewhere in the middle of nowhere. We were even allowed to get out of the wagons under the strict eyes of the guards to do our business. Of course, we didn't get any food. We had what we'd got from our families when we left Gorizia. The next day we travelled through Czechia, and we were wondering where we were and where we were going. I think that on day three we were already in Poland. Just next to the rail tracks we could see army guards, and some of the girls immediately said, look, there'll be partisans here, they'll save us. When we were travelling through Czechia, I saw farms, and I was thinking how happy the people were, and I thought of my family. I longed for home. Soon, though, we crossed the border with Poland, and in the afternoon, we arrived at Auschwitz. 
in popodan smo prišli v Auschwitz. Popodan. By the summer of 1944, people were starting to talk of the end of the war. But there, the war was still very much a reality, and its atrocities were visible at the entrance to the concentration camp. People, however, always have hope. Just to describe what was going on at the time, when we left Gorizia, the Americans had already liberated Rome, and we thought that they'd be here in Gorizia in a few days. Also, in Normandy, we'd heard of the Allied landings, so we thought the war would be over in a month at the latest. All the news we heard was exaggerated in the camp. For example, if the troops were 400 kilometers away, the news was that the liberators were 100 kilometers away. That raised our morale and our hopes. The arrival in the camp was a horrifying experience. The first thing we saw was the barracks, everywhere, rows and rows of barracks. Then many roads and groups of people with soldiers behind them marching them forward. We climbed out of the wagon and were lined up in front of the assembly barracks, where the capos and SS guards started to yell at us. Why were they yelling at us? At the entrance today, there's still a wagon in memory of this. From there, our barracks were not very far away. And the assembly barracks still stand today. Every camp prisoner has their own description for this place. Elsa describes it this way. When I first walked into the camp, it felt unreal, as if I was in some kind of film where the world's different. I remembered that at home we were reading Dante's Inferno. In that book, I remembered a picture of the different circles of hell. And I find myself wondering whether that's where we were. We'd arrived in hell. The first contacts were with the camp prisoners, who prepared the newcomers for life in the camp. Elsa describes her first contact with this unknown camp. First, we put down all the bags and suitcases we'd brought with us. Then, all our jewellery was taken from us. I had a gold chain on me which I wanted to leave with my mum when I saw her in Gorizia, but she told me to keep it and take it with me. I also had the watch which I got at my confirmation, as was the tradition. Then I had my prisoner number tattooed on my arm. After that we went into another room where we had to take off all our clothes. They cut our hair. I had plaits, so they just cut off my plaits. But some women had their hair completely shaved off. Then we were disinfected with some white stuff like lime. All this was done by the other prisoners, men and women. Then we had to shower and we had to wait on the benches all naked until they brought us clothes which were not ready for us yet. It was late in the evening when we finally got clogs and some sort of clothes. During the night, we were transferred from the assembly barracks to the barracks where we would live. Elsa has faith and believes that only God can save them. On my way to the barracks, I thought for a moment that heaven opened. I don't know how to describe it, I felt there was a different heaven. When we got to the barracks, we prayed and begged to go back home.
Many years have passed since those days. Elsa remembers vividly what a typical day was like. It's good to listen to these testimonies, as not many survivors are still alive to tell their stories. The day started at three o'clock in the morning when we got up. At four o'clock we had the assembly and roll call, where we often stood for two hours. There we were brought some black-coloured liquid to drink. In the camp itself, we worked on building the roads, especially those leading to the new barracks when the camp was extended. The ground was flat and swampy, so the roads had to be higher than the rest of the land. That's why they brought big rocks, which we had to break and split into smaller pieces. Then we moved these small pieces in wheelbarrows to the road sites, and then we finished the works with a roller. The works were controlled and led by the prisoners who were engineers before coming to the camp. We basically always worked inside the camp itself. Always, every single day and evening, we had to stand in front of our barracks in the Appellplatz for roll call so they could count us. Until everyone was counted and accounted for, we were not allowed to go to our barracks. For example, when somebody didn't return from work outside in the fields, or when somebody escaped, we'd have to stand in the Appellplatz the whole night. I don't know how we survived. We stood there in the cold and we supported each other. Uh, Even in the summer, it was cold. During the day, when the sun was high, we burned. But when the sun went down, it got cold. When we arrived, the camp was running out of camp uniforms. They were like pyjamas. So we wore civilian clothes, which they took from other prisoners. If someone had civilian clothes, they got a big sign on the back. A big X was painted on the back using oil paint. We were marked. Elsa only ever left the camp in Auschwitz for one day. It was only when she left the camp that she saw how big it really was. First they crossed the men's camp, then the camp where the Roma were held, and then the Jews. Every group was separated and electrical wire surrounded each section. No one could visit anyone else. I left the camp only for one day. It's interesting that we had no idea at the time what the towers we saw were for. People talked and there was a rumour that they were burning corpses. But we all encouraged and supported each other. We believed it would end soon, that we'd survive and that we'd all go home. And then there was another interesting thing, and I believe this happened only in Auschwitz. Every morning, thousands of people went to work in the fields. They didn't leave the camp through the main entrance gate. They were in lines, five by five, with guards on each side. When they left the camp, musicians played music as they passed through the gates. It was mostly Jewish musicians, violinists, who played music while people were passing by. In the evening as well, there was the same ritual with the music. The most difficult part was in the evening, when people had died during the day. Musicians or workers in the fields were exhausted and simply couldn't go on. Some of them were shot. There were also sadistic guards in the fields who literally toyed with the camp prisoners. They'd take away a prisoner's beret and throw it into an area where they were forbidden to go. The 
prisoner was then told to go and pick it up, and when they did, they were shot. They said it was because they were trying to escape. The camp changed everyone, including the strongest. Many a time we saw the dead being brought in from the fields, and all the while the music was playing. They were testing our strength and will with everything they could, and they pushed us to the limits. There were some people there in the camp from Gorizia. They'd arrived at the camp a week before we did. We knew each other well. And when we stood in the Appelplatz that first day, they were there. In just a week, they'd become so dirty, neglected, with no hair, that we simply didn't recognise them at all. In just one week, they were unrecognisable, so much thinner, simply unrecognisable. Life in the camp had its daily routine, and beatings were a regular part of that. In the camp, I mostly spoke Polish. The Kapos who were Polish had been there since 1941, and they were allowed to speak to us in Polish. The others were either Germans or SS guards, but there were also former German prisoners. These women had been in prison for crimes like stealing or prostitution, but when the war broke out, they were employed as Kapos in the camps. They had sticks and would beat any of us women without any reason. God forbid if it was your turn to be beaten. You'd be bruised and wounded and would become a target for others to continue beating you. They smelled blood. You were a target for death. They kicked you and beat you until you were dead. I was quite lucky. I never really got beaten up badly. Maybe a slap here and there. But for us it was sometimes even worse as we were considered to be Italians since we came from Gorizia. We had to wear a symbol in the form of a triangle with the letter I for Italy. Everyone had their national sign on their clothes. At the time, the Germans were angry with the Italians and considered them traitors. So we got additional beatings and abuse because we were Italian. I really don't know how we survived. But Christmas had a special meaning. We had one pot and one spoon. You can still see these utensils in the museum. We had no other possessions. In the morning, we got some watery coffee. Then we washed up. And for lunch, we got some soup made of kohlrabi, maybe a potato or some beets. Once, we worked close to the kitchen, and we saw that the soldiers got real cooked and peeled potatoes. We searched through the rubbish and found the potato peelings. They were so precious for us. Christmas was the only day when we felt full. Yes, Christmas was a day that everyone respected. Some Istrian women from our barracks were helping in the kitchen, and when they returned in the evening, they said, you'll see, for Christmas, we'll get a good lunch. People started guessing and talking about what we would get. I remember we got peeled cooked potato and some meat, and that day I was full. We didn't need much to feel full, of course, as our stomachs had shrunk. Yes, I remember that Christmas lunch vividly, and we hoped we'd get the same for New Year. But we didn't. On any other day, they were just the number tattooed on their arms. 81,996. That was my number. I got it right at the beginning, immediately after we left our luggage and took off our clothes. They called us by number, never by name. 
It's difficult to keep up hope. And yet, hope springs eternal. Elsa does remember a few happy moments among the darkness of her life in the camp. I left the camp only once. I think it might have been a Saturday. In the morning, they came to look for people to help with some work. Among those who came, there was this young Kappa who I liked because she was a good person. She told us that she'd fallen ill with typhus at the beginning of her stay here, but she got better and she became a Kappa. She was really human, and I decided to volunteer because of her, even though I didn't know where we were going. We went to where the latrines were and found a tank of liquid manure. Our task was to take it to the fields. This was the first time I left the camp, and it seemed like a real outing to me. I saw trees again, I heard birds singing, I saw houses. Though, of course, it was not normal people living in the houses, but those who worked at the camp. But I still liked it very much. It felt like a special day. It always happens that in the darkest of moments, there is some light. I remember when we were coming back, it started to rain, and the guards and the capos told us to stop and wait under the porch of a church until the rain stopped. I remember us being happy there, singing German songs. That was the first and only day I left the camp. Elsa was still strong enough to be chosen for work and not death. She left this miserable place and was transferred to a factory near Berlin. But even there, she was still a camp prisoner. The Russian army was nearing and the rumours had started to spread that we'd be evacuated. People said they would release us soon and I still remember the day when the women started to say that in the afternoon people would be selected to leave the camp. But I didn't believe them as this was not the first time I'd heard that. But that Sunday, it really happened. After lunch, we were called to the Appellplatz and a selection was made. It's easy to forget just how young Elsa was when she was arrested. On May the 2nd, 1944, she was just 16 years old. We lived hour by hour. We were only thinking about what we were doing there and then and about what would happen to us. Turning 17 in the factory was a sign of survival for Elsa. It gave her hope and strength for the long journey home she was finally able to undertake when the war ended. Months later, she arrived at her home in Schlorenz in the summer of 1945. The first person she saw standing in front of her house was her grandmother, Amalia. Elsa had lost so much weight that Amalia didn't recognize her. This is still Elsa's home today, even though the Europe she lives in now is a very different place from the one torn apart by war. She ends her story with a message to us. Look after peace in Europe. This was My History, a project from the European Parliament in collaboration with people from all over Europe. If you're interested in more podcasts from the European Parliament, look online for Europal Audio 
or go to the portal of My House of European History.